0: Good morning everyone. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I'd like to welcome you on this snowy morning. I think it's a testament to the topic and the tenacity of this kind of audience that so many people are here and thank you very much and I hope you all had fashionable wellies. I'm going to very briefly introduce um, the context of this morning's Event and then hand over to Lionel Barber, the editor of the Financial Times, to introduce the panel and to chair the event. Editorial Intelligence puts on these events roughly once a month, and we take a topic of relevance and look at it hopefully through two lenses simultaneously. The first is the policies and issues surrounding the subject at hand, and the second is the lens through which that topic is observed by what we call the commentariat those increasingly vital commentators such as Anthony Hilton who increasingly influence the shape and direction of policy and public opinion and to give you a very brief plug for what we do subscribers to editorial intelligence are able to look up profiles of columnists and to see the very fine nuanced detail between Let's say a Jacob Weisberg on the Financial Times and a Wolfgang Munchau by looking up not just what they've written, which of course they can see on ft.com anytime they want to, but really a pricey of the trends in what they write. So that's editorial intelligence. We want to make it our business to help business understand the media better. I'd really like to thank the people we've partnered on this event. The Financial Times is, of course, the gold standard on global business and news reporting, print and online and it's aimed at the world's decision makers which obviously speaks very well to this morning's attendees. This is the first of several events we will be doing with the Financial Times this year. The City of London, this is our second event with the City of London, clearly no debate of this sort could take place without it. As I'm sure you know, 10% of the UK economy is based within its geographical remit. Um, and it is repositioned now fully as the City of London from the Corporation of London. The British American Project, which speaks, of course, as the epitome of the transatlantic alliance, is a partner on this event. And Lord Home of Cheltenham, the chairman, is here this morning. And finally, the uh, Cass Business School positions itself as the city's business school, and. Uh, even before this morning it hands out the Financial Times to its students and it also is arguably the gold standard for academic business education. So I'm going to hand over to Lionel who I think I'm right in saying is in his 30th year as a journalist having started at the Scotsman. He was at the Financial Times for 20 years before he was made the editor in 2005. He is festooned with more awards and co-authoring credits than I could possibly mention if you want any more of the event to take place. And of course, he was the U.S. managing editor before he became the editor. So I'm going to hand over to Lionel Barber. Thank you.
1: Okay. Good morning. (laughs) Julia, thank you for those kind words. Uh, Delighted to be here at the Caspers and School in the city. We have a very topical subject. I'm somewhat torn having spent uh, four years in New York and now back in London. The question I would ask is, does London really believe its own hype? Is it really the best place to work in the world? We have four distinguished panelists who are going to tackle that topic. Uh, So you don't really want to hear from me. All I would say is you might want to look at the front page of the Financial Times today, where we reveal that the Citigroup is actually... Unveiled a shake-up which is going to favour executives outside New York, and particularly in London. It's a pretty timely story. So, uh, to move to our panelists, our first panelist is Tony Hamlos, um, who is the communications director of the Corporation of London. Over to you, Tony.
2: Thanks very much, Lionel, and, and thanks for your lead-in with the front page of the FT. Uh, Also, uh, thanks to those who organised the weather for trying to pretend that we're in New York, snowstorms, transport disruption. The trouble is that, uh, what storms? A bit of flurry and the transport collapses. We're trying to to copy something we don't want to copy there, but there we are. I'll come to transport later, briefly. Um, The City of London Corporation, the City of London, is delighted to support today's EI seminar, along with the FT, the Cass Business School and the British American Project. This event uh, has of course been planned for some time, as you know from when you first uh, received notice of it. But with the publication just two weeks ago of the McKinsey Report in New York, the whole debate could not be more topical today. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, the McKinsey Report was commissioned by Mayor Bloomberg about New York's future as a major financial center. And the report warns that New York is losing business and highly skilled workers to other competitors, particularly London. So the papers in both cities have been filled with headlines about panic on Wall Street, implying that New York is finished as a financial centre, at least some of them implying, not the FT, I hasten to add, and that London is taking over the world. Now, London is indeed doing extremely well, but I would urge caution. The fact that London is creeping up on New York is not something that has happened overnight. Since the end of the Second World War, and then more rapidly since the 1960s, there has been a shift in the centre of gravity, as capital markets outside the US have enjoyed surging growth. It used to be that firms wishing to raise capital would naturally go to New York and nowhere else, or near enough nowhere else. Today, there is much more choice, and increasingly, firms are choosing to raise money in other financial centres, and London has, of course, been the prime beneficiary of that. The growth of Europe's single market has further reinforced this trend. Indeed, in 2006, a total of 55 billion dollars, 28 billion pounds, was raised on the London Stock Exchange and on its AIM market. And and for the first time, this figure exceeded the amount raised in a year on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, where where the issues raised 47 billion dollars, 24 billion pounds. In addition to IPOs, London also leads New York in financial services, job creation, and in vital areas such as foreign exchange and over-the-counter derivatives markets. London has been leading New York in a number of areas, therefore, for some years now. But what is new is that this lead is now extending. But New York has some inherent advantages. Crucially, it is the largest financial market in the world, and is likely to remain so given the size of its domestic market compared to that of London. But London's key advantage is its strength in international markets, and it has been for some time. At the City of London, we have been using the strapline, the world's leading international financial centre, for at least a decade. This is because the city is internationally owned, internationally managed, and internationally staffed. It depends on international business and on talented individuals from around the world. Again, today's FT story reinforcing that. Indeed, it depends on many US firms, Citigroup and others, which handle large amounts of business from their London offices. The Americans are most definitely in town. And their London offices are obviously becoming increasingly important for them, let alone for London and for the UK. The McKinsey Report mentions another uh, recent story that was in the Financial Times, that Goldman Sachs has taken the unprecedented step of setting up a duplicate office for the chief executive officer in london as this is where he now spends at least half his time in the past high level figures of that kind would have been almost continually new york based traveling around the world no doubt but new york based so it is london's internationalism that's keeping it at the top of the global financial services league Now, just because London is successful in international markets today and ahead of New York in some areas, this does not mean that the situation will be the same tomorrow or in 20 years' time. The city needs careful nurturing, and in London it would be very easy for self-congratulation to turn into complacency. New York is certainly a formidable rival, and it is in no way down and out. Some long-term trends have been against New York, as I say, but also regulatory and legislative own goals such as Sarbanes-Oxley have damaged its position and worked more recently in London's favour. I know that Mayor Bloomberg hopes that the McKinsey report will act as a wake-up call for US policymakers. New York will eventually turn this trend round, or at least that that trend more recently (laughs) driven, out of Washington by regulatory changes. Thus, London cannot rest on its laurels, we have to take a long-term view, so now is the time to redouble our efforts on the main challenges which face the city – tax and regulation, infrastructure, skills. On tax, more needs to be done to make the regime clearer and simpler. On regulation, London must remain well-regulated, but not over-regulated. On infrastructure, this covers all manner of things, including, of course, public transport – topic all this morning, for those who were disrupted – but also longer-term projects such as Crossrail, which is vital for London and long overdue, but also, in other areas, having the right sort of buildings so that (laughs) world-class businesses can operate here. And on skills, one of London's key assets for its major firms is a highly skilled workforce. We must continue to foster this environment and to raise the aspirations of more and more school and college leavers here so that they would wish to work in this business sector. So if we get it right on these key issues, the city will have the best chance of being able to sustain its competitive position. To conclude, the city is flourishing today and it has a number of strong advantages. But it has no God-given right to flourish tomorrow or in 20 years' time. And as I said earlier, we must guard against complacency and never take the city's success for granted. But London must be careful not to frame everything exclusively within a transatlantic framework. Of course, there will be much talk in today's event about the McKinsey report, but we must also remember that other report from Goldman Sachs recently, which says that 2050 might see both China and India's economies eclipse the USA's. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Tony. Um, For that perspective, I think it'd be summed up in two words no gloating. Jonathan Taylor uh, is our next speaker. He's Director General of the London Investment Banking Association, a uh, position he's held since N- November 2005. He was previously at UBS, and f- after a long career at the US Treasury, so he'd have some very interesting comments to make about Crossrail. Maybe not.
3: <laughs> uh,
1: Jonathan also served in Brussels, where we occasionally crossed swords. Over to you, Jonathan.
3: I was just just making the point that it was the uh, U.K. Treasury rather than the U.S. one, but um, I think think you covered that point by referring to to Crossrail. Um, I've got a nasty feeling that the no-gloating message is going to be one which I'm going to be more or less repeating, but I'll uh, I'll, I'll crack on through my points, and um, and we'll see where we get. Uh, There are eight particular points uh, which I wanted to make, really. First is, I think it's important to remember that we're comparing apples and oranges, uh, when we're talking about uh, London on the one hand and uh, New York, and for that matter, Chicago on the other. On the U.S. side, we're talking about financial centers whose core purpose is to facilitate capital provision to the underlying economy, whereas here, of course, we're, um, as Tony said, we're principally providing um, capital and services to the international markets. So that oil provides certain advantages and certain disadvantages, one advantage from our point of view, it might well be that uh, it makes it that much easier for the authorities to distinguish between uh, their approach towards um, uh, regulation and supervision of, sorry, sorry about that, regulation and supervision of wholesale services uh, and to continue to promote the approach, which is sometimes described as light touch, which I'm not sure is a terribly, terribly happy phrase, but I think we know what we're talking about there. Um, third point I'd make is that uh, both centres have seen continuing, both centres have seen continuing steady increases in activity and development over the last 20 plus years, and the focus, which Tony rightly makes on London's success in securing, for example, international listings and growth in activity in internationally traded bonds and AIM and IPOs and so on should not obscure the fact that uh, both sides of the Atlantic are success stories, but of different kinds. Fourth point, it's vital to avoid complacency. Um, Work is progressing on both sides of the Atlantic to identify areas of weakness and suggest solutions. There's not only the McKinsey stuff, uh, which uh, uh, Tony referred to, but also the work done by Hal Scott for the um, Hubbard-Thornton Committee on Capital Markets Regulation, which covers um, very similar ground, um, reaches very similar conclusions, perhaps goes into some of the points in in more depth, but is, um, um, uh, and rather more facts and figures, I think, um, but um, essentially goes in very much the same direction. (laughs) And some of the points which they touch on, in particular litigation, I think are ones which are perhaps rather less tractable than some of the other points which they they mention. Um, On our side, of course, there's the initiative which the Chancellor has taken to set up his high-level group and to work within that, to take things forward, which I think is extremely encouraging and um, shows that there is uh, an awareness on this side too, of the need to act, Um, and of course the uh, Investment Exchanges Act is an example of that. Fifth point, uh, it's important not to uh, ignore the wider world, the competing centres elsewhere, Hong Kong, Mumbai, Singapore, uh, which would be happy to take internationally mobile business away from either side of the Atlantic. Um, And we need to consider also the wider legislative policy context in which we work. Um, Clearly another point, impact of policy issues which aren't specific to financial services but which have a significant bearing on its health in in either center, ease of uh, immigration for uh, highly skilled workers, Um, (coughs) transport issues, housing issues, quality of life issues, all of these are relevant. So who's ahead, Um, which I think is the title. Um, which we're talking to. I think uh, a rather weaselly answer to that is that it depends a bit on what we're talking about. Um, in internationally mobile businesses, I think the consensus would be that, that, that London is currently uh, ahead in, in, in taking, uh, taking on business, and that's perhaps reinforced by the perceptions of, um, of the approach which the uh, regulatory and super, supervisory authorities are taking, and I think that's, that's all helpful. But of course, in absolute terms, we shouldn't ignore the fact that um, that, it, that in terms of its share of overall wholesale business in the world, um, the United States share has actually gone up in the last, in the last few years, so, so <coughs> there's a, a success story there too. Um, what's the likelihood of the position changing? It's often observed that markets can move quite very quickly in the face of, for example, um, adverse regulatory change, and the example which is always given is the shift in the Euro markets to Europe. On the other hand, um, that sort of shift requires um, other things to be equal, whereas frequently they're not equal. For example, London's favorable location from the point of view of time is unlikely to change. Um, Furthermore, I think whereas the uh, uh, Hubbard-Bloomberg studies identify a number of issues, um, perhaps the most important, as I mentioned before, is is litigation, uh, uh, and that seems also to me to be one of the least tractable. not least because um, I can see that changing the approaches to litigation uh, in the United States might raise um, significant core constitutional questions. I'd be interested to know what others who are more expert on the United States think about that. Thank you. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Now you've left the Treasury, would you like to comment on the quality (laughs) of city ministers before
3: Ed Balls? Certainly, say how fortunate we are to have Ed doing that job now. Uh, thank <laughs>
1: Excellent. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is Professor Scott Muller, who is the CEO and Director of Executive Education at Cass Business School. He's a longtime practitioner in the financial markets, worked for Morgan Stanley, uh, Deutsche Bank, he's also worked for Booz Allen. He is a frequent commentator uh, on business issues for the Financial Times and one or two other publications. (laughs) Take it away, Scott.
4: Thank you very much. Um, You'll also notice the American accent, um, although I should add just uh, to make sure that people don't misunderstand, I have a British passport, but the the Queen doesn't hand out accents with the passports, uh, so uh, much (laughs) as it would be nice sometimes. I've um, worked originally in New York. Uh, I also have worked in Tokyo for six years. Uh, I worked in Frankfurt for four years. Uh, Obviously, I'm here in the UK, and I've been here for 12 years this time around. Uh, I grew up and actually graduated from uh, secondary school in Brussels. So from that perspective, I think can bring in a fair amount uh, from the global side if people wish to talk about that aspect there. Uh, I think I'm also the apologist for the United States, given the accent uh, that um, (laughs) my parents gave me. Um, One of the things that I should... um, mentioned to start off with, and I think it's always good to start with a sports analogy um, uh, given some of the things that are taking place, not the least of which the takeover of Liverpool Football Club that took place just a couple days ago. Uh, The U.S. does need to realize, and I think they are realizing for the first time, that both the Super Bowl and the World Series aren't necessarily, in financial services that is, uh, a North American event. And part of that, I think, is is what we're seeing here, is we're seeing the internationalization or the globalization of this conflict. Uh, My particular specialism happens to be mergers and acquisitions, Uh, and it was back in the 1990s when the volume of deals outside the US began to exceed the volume of deals in the US. Now, the US was still one concentrated market, and that non-US portion was distributed between Asia and Europe principally. Uh, But the fact that it began to change from what was very clearly a U.S.-driven market in the 1980s and early 1990s was really quite a shift, at least in the marketplace, that I was looking at most. Um, But like many games, and certainly like America's favorite game, baseball, or perhaps uh, cricket, uh, which most Americans don't understand, there, uh, at least in baseball, there's nine innings. You know, the game isn't over yet, although in some cases uh, perhaps some qualification rounds have been uh, completed, Uh, But there are wild cards that come into play as well. I'm not sure that this ought to be a debate between New York and London, but also one that should include Shanghai and Hong Kong as well. Because, in fact, if you look at the IPO market, uh, what's been taking place in Hong Kong exceeds either of the other two markets that we're actually talking about uh, here today. And also, remember some of those things that can take place that are quite surprising. I was in Tokyo back in 1988-89, when the market capitalization of Nomura exceeded the sum total of all the publicly held investment banks in the United States. Okay? Look where Nomura is today compared to where Morgan Stanley, uh, Lehman Brothers, uh, Salmon Brothers, now part of, um, of Citigroup uh, that was on the front page today, uh, and the other firms. Uh, Goldman Sachs, of course, was not public back in 88, uh, 89. The other one to think about is, I was in uh, Frankfurt uh, in the mid-1990s when Frankfurt was saying that they were going to take over London, especially with the Euro coming in. Uh, So we have to look at, you know, how this market may change and how the financial markets may change, so very different from what we expect. Frankfurt was sure that they were going to take over London with the Euro coming in. Uh, By the way, for those of us who were London apologists at the time, which I was, Uh, it was very easy to remind people that the number of employees in London in the financial services sector exceeded the total population of Frankfurt. Uh, But nevertheless, um, it... it, it. Now, being somebody at Cass Business School, I can't help but talk about talent. Um, There's a story that just took place yesterday. Um, I was in a meeting with a very senior governmental representative, uh, His Royal Highness, from one of uh, the Middle Eastern countries. And amongst other things, one of the reasons why he told us he was in the room with us was because they didn't want to send their high potential employees in the financial services sector back to the United States for education, and in fact had been sending them uh, to Harvard and would not be doing so in the future, and wanted to look at alternatives here in London, uh, not the least of which being ourselves here. Uh, Also remember that the McKinsey Report talked about the percentage of qualified professionals here in London being higher than back in New York, that we do have a very well-educated group of individuals feeding into the city here uh, amongst other reasons because of what we're doing here at Cass Business School and when I think about my the rest of my day uh, yesterday I was actually out in Canary Wharf uh, I was meeting with Morgan Stanley and I was meeting with the Bank of New York by the way soon to be Bank of New York Mellon soon to have a chairman who came from the Mellon side who was a graduate from Cass Business School so we can see through all of this that there's a talent here of people coming in and looking and seeking for some of this uh, that we're doing here. Lastly, and I'll stop here, I just want to talk about the regulation side. In the US, uh, things are very different as we know from here. And companies, at least a lot of the ones that I speak with, uh, prefer the regulatory environment of London. And in fact, there's a lot of discussion back in the US where I spend time as well, uh, talking about trying to mimic what we're doing over here. Remember, we are a comply or explain environment. The U.S., it's comply or go to jail. There's a big, big difference from a manager's perspective and a CEO and board's perspective uh, between those two different uh, regimes.
1: Thank you, Scott. I'd like to now hand over to Anthony Hilton. Uh, to Anthony Hilton, who's been in the newspaper business even longer than I have. Uh, we actually worked together, full disclosure, at the Sunday Times, um, uh, more than 25 years ago. Now, Anthony has worked, for, um, worked in New York uh, as well as London. should add that he's covered some pretty interesting stories in his career. Guerrilla wars, uh, not in Washington, uh, <laughs> in Guatemala, El Salvador. He covered the Iranian hostage crisis, the shooting of John Lennon, and the British challenge for the America's Cup, yacht races. He's been uh, a long-time city editor of the London Evening Standard, He spent six years in something called market-led management. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, But he is now a business commentator, a distinguished business commentator uh, within the city pages of the Standard. Tony.
5: Thank you, Lionel. Uh, I want to take a different perspective on this and uh, just ask why it is that the city has survived at all, because that, I think, gives us the clues to why it will survive in the future. Uh, if you think why you have an international financial center, it comes into being because it has to service the needs of a domestic economy, which is powerful, and it has to serve the needs of international trade from customers of that domestic economy overseas. Hence, uh, you had Venice in the time of uh, uh, Shylock and uh, and um, the merchant of Venice. You had Amsterdam at the time of the uh, Dutch Empire. And then you got London on the back of the British Empire when trade followed the flag. and. Uh, The curious thing about London is it is the only financial center in history which has survived and floated free when its domestic economy has declined. As the British economy went from premier division to third division south, um, the economy managed to float free. Uh, The city managed to float free. And the question you have to ask is why did that happen? I think there there, there are three things. which, we, which allowed the city to divorce itself from the health of the UK generally. And one was its open door policy, the fact that um, banks and everybody else was, uh, were allowed to come here and then trade back to the, wherever it was they came from, the Schroders back to Germany, the bearings back to um, Norway, which was safer than uh, Singapore. And, um, but open door policy, absence of regulation that you could do in London things which were illegal elsewhere, Um, even if it was just pay the rate of interest that you wanted to, and um, other people's money. As demand for sterling diminished, um, the city switched to using first dollars, then Deutschmarks, then yen, and now euro. So those three ingredients, um, you know, open door, absence of regulation, and uh, other people's money, are what has underpinned the city. Uh, through the lean years of, uh, as it were, 1945, through to 1960, 61. And, and, this, and then you could add in recent additions like uh, English as the world language, the time zone, and London being a nice place to live if you earn a city salary. Um, and uh, the, and that, that, that is the nucleus of the offer. If you look going forward what there is, then we, we still have those essential ingredients of an open door policy which is manifested, if you like, in the, um, the work done to have Sharia-compliant bonds uh, and markets in London, whereas, as uh, somebody said, um, everything um, Arab is obviously terrorism finance in, uh, in, in the U.S. context. But the, the other open-door thing is the, uh, the fact that London has been a magnet. We've had a brain drain from the brightest and best people from right across Europe Um, have come here. So it's not a matter of the head of Goldman Sachs simply coming and working three or four days in London. But all the bright kids, uh, if you look at who gets the jobs in the city, there's hardly a a traditional English name among them. They're they're from Scandinavia, from Germany, from Italy, um, all coming here. So we have got the best and the brightest of the generation of financial people coming to London to work, which is just as well as half our kids can't read when they leave school. So. That, 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 that is, um, if you like, the international environment that London has had for years. And what we now have with globalization is essentially that the world is coming to us because the world has become international and we are the natural recipient of it. I mean, the art of being an investment banker now is to hold a bucket out of the window so the money catches it. You know, the money goes into it. it. It's all coming our way. Now, I think we have to separate size from internationalism. That New York is big. Tokyo is big, but neither of them are particularly international market. You go to them if you want to access their domestic capital. There isn't a flood of issues on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. They don't float Korean, Taiwanese, There's one or two Chinese, but very few non-Japanese companies have ever floated on the Tokyo Exchange. Um, and uh, and I, so I think that international financial center is different from big financial center. And that's the advantage that London has, which New York, I think, is going to have great difficulty in matching. I mean, New York is essentially a protectionist society to the extent that you can't even set up an airline there if you're not an American. Um, so I, I think that the, the, the things are, are going our way. Two, two other points. Um, one, I, I think that we, underestimate what is happening in terms of international capital flows in the sense that uh, when we had our industrial Revolution 200 years ago, the depression in the price of labour created huge rewards to capital. In other words, capital became the scarce factor of production. Hence the Victorian capitalists of uh, uh, Karl Marx fame and so on, who were extremely wealthy. We now have the Chinese Industrial Revolution becoming a global industrial revolution, depressing wages on a global scale, and creating huge rewards to capital, which London is admirably positioned to capture, and which will probably carry for a generation, you know, 30 or 40 years. So we are in the right place as the world is moving our way. And the other thing is, I would argue that the United States is probably in the wrong place in... um, Well, three senses if you include political attitudes, but two, uh, basically economic. It is excessively dependent on two key commodities. One is oil, obviously, that it can't get from home, and the other is money. The U.S. is a mass importer of other people's money to keep its lifestyle going, which relies on confidence in the dollar. And if you look 30 years ahead, is the dollar still going to be the international currency, or will it be replaced by the renminbi or uh, the Chinese currency? If you take the view that the dollar is going to be less in demand as an international currency, then that has huge implications for the United States as an international financial center. Absolutely colossal implications, and it requires a huge adjustment in the American economy to cope with that. Which, again, will, the fact that it's not enough for us to succeed, our opponents have to fail. And um, <laughs> the, so there are lots of ingredients, potentially, in the... Uh, U.S. situation, which don't actually add or contribute to its long-term international, as opposed to domestic, strength. So I'm a bull of London; it'll certainly see me out. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat>
1: <clears throat> <clears throat> okay, I'm going to dub you raging bull now, Tony. Um, uh, before I uh, open up the uh, floor to questions, I just. One comment from my perspective, having been in New York from 2002 to 2005. First, the legislation that was introduced, Sarbanes-Oxley, really was done in a tremendous rush. I mean, this was done in a matter of three or four weeks. If you'd been in the spring of 2002, nobody would have given a a cat in hell's chance of that legislation passing. Once WorldCom happened and the other scandals, it went through, and they have been trying to catch up or reverse ever since. Second, the, uh, it is remarkable, even though New York is one of, the, it's the greatest city, I think it's a wonderful place to live. I think it's an incredibly sophisticated cosmopolitan city. The, it can actually be quite parochial. Um, I, 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 an investment bank who runs one of the big investment banks came over to the Financial Times last year. He hadn't been to London in four years, and he was blown away by what he saw in terms of hedge fund growth and others. Now, I'm not saying that applies to a lot of the bankers, but they're quite insular. For a long, long time, New York was a tremendous place uh, to do business, and they looked at Connecticut yeah. and they thought, that's the place to be. And this kind of g- came up them almost by stealth. Um, okay, now, I'm going to throw uh, the floor open, I'll throw open uh, the debate to questions. I've got two, p- two strictures here. One is Everything's on the record. Scary. Um, But it's also being podcast. Two, you've got to identify yourself, please. And no statements. If you make a statement, I'll interrupt. So please ask a question. You've got very good people here on the panel. Who wants to kick off? Okay. uh, At the back, and then I'll take the front.
6: Good morning. Um, I'm Alex Merriman. I'm a director of the British Bankers Association. Um, in a former guise, I was also the manager of, of the Bank of England's City Competitiveness Group. Um, I'd like to return to this theme of, of education and I've so eloquently expressed by, by Lionel about the sort of failings of, of the UK domestic um, educational system. It seems to me that what has happened in the city in the last 20 years is precisely the point that Lionel made that we've, we've um, overcome those gaps by hiring lots of people from elsewhere. Now, the question is, w- to what degree is this sustainable? Are all the Europeans who at some point will f- get fed up with London go back, go back to their homelands or is this gap, this educational gap, fillable by uh, new recruits from China, India, and so on. I mean, you've got a lot of uh, finance students here at Cass Business School. So is this educational gap uh, sustainable from, from imports from elsewhere?
1: Uh, Tony, I think you uh, were the first to make those comments. Would you like to
6: answer?
5: I'm quite happy for you to reply, Lionel, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 think, I think it's a bit chicken and egg, quite honestly. I think that we will attract the people provided we have the market. Um, but were London to go off the boil, then the people would go somewhere else. Um, I, I, I see no difficulty in continuing to attract the people as long as London is dynamic, open, and has the opportunities. Uh, I was um, round at LSE the other day, um, talking to uh, to um, some of them, and almost everybody in LSE wants to work for Goldman Sachs. It's really quite depressing, but um, they, you know more than half the students are overseas, and and. Uh, I, I, I see. they all do almost all of them do actually want to get careers in the city so the, I, I, I think that's there I, I, I think um, I, I don't see any short term improvement in UK education so I think we're going to have to continue to attract them that's the other point
1: Gentlemen in the front row do
5: you want to just raise your hand? wait for the mic
7: yes J- Julian Samuels from Harmonic Capital which is a hedge fund and also Leaf. It strikes me one of the advantages of London is the lack of globalisation in regulation.
2: If you take the hedge fund industry for a moment, the changes in the laws at the SEC or the regulations from, from the SEC, which were struck down by the US courts, has given an enormous advantage to the FSA regime in relation to hedge funds in the UK. Uh, many hedge funds have withdrawn from the SEC and the IPOs for major hedge funds are happening in London. Does the panel think <laughs> that this relative advantage of lack of globalization
7: in terms of regulation going to continue and will London continue to benefit? Scott,
4: do you want to take that? Yeah, let me take that first. The, um, I do think that the, it, let me start over again. The US I think if anything right now is actually in a trend where they are going to be doing uh, more in terms of regulation rather than less. And I think it's been made quite clear from the regulatory front here in the UK uh, that we're going to continue sailing the same uh, way that we have been. Uh, so, from that perspective, I think the regulatory uh, arbitrage that's going to be possible between the two locations is going to favour the UK for, I think, the foreseeable future. Right.
1: Jonathan, do you uh, want to have a word? I agree with.
3: Uh, <coughs> yes, I agree with that. I think that um, I, I think policymakers and and indeed the regulators here both sort of both sort of um, talk the talk, but also walk the walk uh, in, 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 in their approach. And I see no particular reason why that should change.
1: What about fearsome Brussels?
3: Well, I think we have to work uh, within that wider framework, um, but I don't see any reason why that should handicap us in any particular way, which seems to be the implication of the way you asked the question. No, I, not at all.
1: <laughs> Tony? Um,
2: I think uh, what's been said is correct that, that London is doing um, better in getting regulation right or as far right as you can, as much right as you can get it. Um, uh, the single regulator is a great uh, help, uh, and there's starting to be talk in the US about that. I don't know whether that, in practice anything will come of it, but at least there's talk of it rather than it being ignored. Um, That is a major point. Brussels isn't obviously a a key issue, but we're winning the arguments in Brussels. And and while there's lots of decision-making to get right, as well as the arguments being won at the top, the senior people understand the case that we're making and crucially understand London is Europe's financial hub and they need to nurture it as well, uh, which is not the position I remember going to Brussels 12 years ago when I started doing the current job I'm doing and being told that uh, it was right at the end of the the law uh, presidency, and I was basically told that the view in the Law cabinet was that London was an offshore financial centre and nothing to do with the European Union. Uh, it was an extraordinary statement then, and it sounds extraordinary now, but that's, that was the sort of mood, and maybe slightly exaggerated for, my, for effect with me, but nonetheless, that was thought, uh, a very different, uh, utterly, utterly different attitude for some considerable time since then. Um, just on education, it was mentioned earlier, um, appropriately here, Cass Business School and the City of London, for instance, are together jointly sponsoring one of the um, okay controversial these days but nonetheless uh, city academies but what it's about is getting improving skill levels in UK secondary education so don't forget that yes we will get people from overseas and so we should and, and, and we'll do more but we're also a- actively that is to say business in the city is actively trying to do its bit uh, to improve the secondary education flow into the skilled s- skills that we need.
1: Tony?
5: i just say one thing about regulation. There's no business so good that politicians can't screw it up. And um, my, if you like, I've got a left field concern about regulation, which is that if you take us of typically hysterical press, um, ganging up on private equity, ganging up on hedge funds, they could create a mood where politicians would find it convenient to legislate against the city in in a normal ham-fisted way. You get a Financial Dangerous Dogs Act. Um, and uh, I could see that as a possibility. I, I think other than that, I think the FSA is going the right way if the city generally wants um, principles regulation um, and uh, as opposed to saying it wants it, which is rather different.
1: Thank you. Next. Sarah?
0: Sarah Spikes from the Financial Times. I'm just wondering, we um, seem to have a room full of London bulls Is there anybody who's a bear, and is there any um, reason to be concerned about London becoming more powerful than New York at some point?
5: Well, there are lots of things that could go wrong. Um, I mean, I think we've more or less Hmm. been through them. You know, regulation, uh, ham-fisted tax so that uh, overseas people working here um paid the same tax that the domestic people do, which would be terrible, wouldn't it? Um, <clears throat> uh, but, but, but tax and regulation could, could very easily screw it up, I think. Um, <clears throat> there could be a global backlash against, um, uh, against uh, globalization generally, which would create protectionism, which might inhibit things. Uh, you could get a worldwide crash. I mean, the way China's going, it must blow up at some point. Um, you could get a backlash against the financial system if uh, we get a crash and all this uh, syst- th- this uh, uh, credit derivatives and so on turn out to have been um, not as properly documented as uh, people suggest they are, or some people suggest they aren't. Um, so there are lots of things that could go wrong, but then, I mean, always wrong, there always are. I mean, you have, to, you have to be an optimist. Scott?
4: Yeah, I think there's actually two things that might uh, uh, that might come into play on that. One of them would be if there is a major scandal here that, despite uh, even any regime of regulation, uh, there is a Parmalat, there is a WorldCom, there is a Enron that takes place in the London arena, and then uh, that, depending on what that scandal may be, uh, that could have a major impact on London's ability to compete. The other is just to come back and reiterate, it, but not for too long, to say that. Again, the game is not necessarily between New York and London, but between New York and London and perhaps uh, one or several Asian uh, centers of finance as well.
1: Um, should we take John Thain's comments about the um, AIM market at face value?
4: Uh, as as anything t- that John says, I think one should, uh, should consider quite carefully. Um, he and I were actually at school together. I, I, I quite, um, I've, I've learned to... Uh, judges wisdom wisely. But um, I don't think that at this point in time we need to be more concerned about AIM than one would be about any of the other uh, smaller markets around the world. Yeah.
1: Okay, sir, in the front. And then at the back, the next, yeah.
7: John Cook, International Financial Services, London. I was interested in what Tony Halmos said about um, us winning the... Uh, we, the UK, winning the argument in Brussels, and I, I think that that sounds right to me. There is, of course, another argument um, going on in, in about um, global regulatory convergence in various ways, and there, too, um, it would be important to uh, to, uh, to win the uh, to win the argument. I mean, if there is a great deal of convergence, then it seems to me the regulation will. Uh, con- if there is convergence, it will turn on. The attractiveness of London will turn on other aspects of london that 's still a I- very important point. What does the panel feel about uh, international regulatory convergence and what it does to our position
1: <coughs> Tony, do you want to try that um,
7: Well I
2: think that it let's say it can be helpful if done in the right way, so we shouldn 't uh, With the usual pragmatic London answer we shouldn't object to it in principle (laughs) 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 but we should be very (laughs) we should uh, we should be very very careful about it I mean I think um, we don't want to take away from our regulatory system the, the, the good parts which is not to say in any human institution that it's perfect. Of course, no human institution is, but and there are things to learn from other people and all the rest of it. But that uh, the idea of of progressing on a steady, uh, steady road to, uh, in any time scale that's relevant to anyone in this room, our lifetimes, in other words, our working lifetimes, uh, to a sort of worldwide regulatory regime was not going to be helpful.
3: Jonathan. I agree. I mean, I, I think that I think the key point to remember is that um, I mean, regulation doesn't sort of of itself create wealth. I mean, it is it's it, it, it's an enabler. Um, so, <coughs> provided provided that the sort of approximation or convergence or whatever is in the right direction, then we should continue to benefit from the other advantages which we have, which are the reasons why people are, people are doing business. They're not just doing business here just because the regu- regulation is good. I mean, that helps. Clearly, but it's an enabler rather than anything else.
1: So I think it's the direction that's important. Okay, gentlemen, uh, back there.
7: Uh, Martin Van Der Weyre, business editor of The Spectator. Um, This this is a thought that hadn't really occurred to me before, but let me try it on you. There is a certain element of gloating about London in this conversation so far, but I wonder if any of you think it's possible that the success and preeminence of London as a financial center can, at a certain point, become a bad thing for London in the sense that... uh, it's so distorting to the wider economy in terms of driving house prices up in terms of half of half of the students at the LSE want to work for Goldman Sachs means they don't want to start businesses make things do other useful things Uh, in terms of the drive into private equity and hedge funds leaving the wider retail investment and savings industry as a very second-rate thing which only the Duffers work in and so on Um, is it possible that actually New York has a better balance and that London is becoming too much of a good thing in that sense.
1: Tony? Uh,
5: yes, but I mean I wouldn't start <laughs> worrying about it now. It's been like that for 60-odd years. Um, the, I mean, you, you can attribute a lot of the decline of British industry to the fact that the city has, since the war, attracted the best brains and the best money, and we're just seeing this in spades now. So uh, it, it is the consequence of having a financial centre which is disproportionately so much more powerful than the domestic economy, which is the point I was making earlier, that we are unique in it. Um, so you can't have it both ways. Um, I mean, the UK is basically a giant hedge fund with a bet on financial services. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't beat that for a quote. Scott, do you want
4: to comment on the Gilded quick. Just another quick comment on that. I th- we haven't changed history. This isn't uh, the post the end of history, which I think we all probably read uh, about five, ten years ago. Uh, there w- it will be cyclical, and unfortunately we are too exposed to expose the financial services here in London. Uh, house prices will go down again at some point. Uh, that's not a prediction. That's just a certainty, according to those who I, uh, I, I speak to. The markets will fluctuate. Uh, that is a problem. That doesn't, I think, change the fact that from the financial services perspective uh, that leadership still may be there.
1: At the back, gentlemen. Cass Business School. Uh, Nobody's mentioned technology,
2: and I'm, I'm wondering with the back of my mind whether that <laughs> might not change the whole game in 10 or 15 years' time. Of course, the big international firms will still be headquartered in London, but the buying, the selling, and
3: the trading could be almost anywhere.
1: Mumbai. Does anyone want to take technology? Jonathan?
3: I, I have to say what I know about technology can be written on the back of a very small pin. Um, but but I would, I mean, I, the only observation I'd make is that people were making this point 15 years ago. I mean, and, and making it as, as, as solidly as they're making it now with as much concern <coughs> then. It, it hasn't happened, so. it's really one
1: of the points about technology is the way in which um, boutiques have spun out of the investment banks and you now have hedge funds with mm-hmm. eight, nine people. Mm-hmm. Um, Heather. Thank
7: you, Heather McGregor from Taylor Bennett. We recruit communicators for some of the largest companies in the world based in London, and I'd just like to put um, to the panel, I'd like to hear everybody's views on this, if I could, Mr Chairman, um, to ask what they think of an argument put in, I think, um, the current issue of editorial intelligence is, um, uh, whatever you call this, Julia, your um, business comment special, yes, um, that actually one of the things going against London is its press, um, obviously honourable exception of the FT, but the, <laughs> the Sunday Times and Sunday Telegraph in particular, her, their business sections have become so... Um, erroneous in some of their reporting and so hard-hitting on some of our business leaders that they might well pack up their businesses and go to the United States.
1: Uh, Tony, you can ask this last. <laughs> the press, that are they to blame? Um, are, they, could, they? could they? Could they be to
2: blame? Um, well, I'll just think first of the... Uh, Keep
1: your words very carefully. <laughs> oh, of course.
2: <laughs> I was going to. I was uh, going to say that there wasn't, wasn't it one of those Enoch Powell quips about the, um, um, referring to politicians, but in this case we should change the quote to business or the city, um, he said that uh, politicians complaining about the press is like a, a ship's captain complaining about the weather or, or about the waves. Now there's an element of truth in that, so uh, we've just got to accept that the press does what it does and that it varies and it has its different approaches. You have the you have the FT, you have the uh, have Anthony and the and uh, the City Pages and the Standard, and you and you and you have uh, let's just say uh, other other organs of opinion as well, and you have to take your pig. So I I don't I uh, seriously I don't think it's a key player or factor in the fundamental issue we're, we're debating this morning that's really really my substantive answer to your point is it an issue if we were having a as it have we, indeed i think we had it in this room uh, bi- business commentary and press and we discussed what they're like and what we thought of them that's a different matter we can have that conversation uh, and, and i have views on that like everyone else but Uh, But in terms of the fundamental issue, London, New York, City, Wall Street, where a financial service is going to go, is the press a key driver? No. Is the press the vehicle for communicating on, for instance, if a big scandal were to arise and how the press handled that? Would that affect the point that uh, uh, Tony Hilton was saying earlier? Yes, it obviously would. Uh, 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 and if, in, in um, God forbid, a big scandal should arise, how it's handled in the
3: media—obviously, it's a key part of, the, of what happens. Mm.
1: Jonathan, the uh, New York Post versus the Sun—who's ahead?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea whether the press um, has, a, has a particular bearing on, 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 on location, as, as, as Tony says. I mean, for my own part, uh, I really only read um, one excellent newspaper, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm not really
6: in
1: much this of a position to comment. Nice. <laughs> okay, Scott.
4: Actually, I've got an interesting question. Uh, So I'm gonna answer Heather's uh, question with a question maybe for Lionel You Is the international circulation of the Financial Times greater than the international circulation of the Wall Street Journal? Yes. Yeah, because my impression is when you go much uh, bigger. Yeah, when you go over, <laughs> when you go outside of the home markets, and it comes to that same point. So I'm glad actually the answer supports what I was about ready to say, um, which is uh, that the FT actually uh, is more influential outside of the UK than the Wall Street Journal is outside of New York. And once again makes that point. At least the facts now seem to back me up uh, on, on that point, you know, about the uh, financial press here. So perhaps that's the answer,
5: Tony. Yeah, I mean, I, one of my speeches is, why is the UK financial press so bad? Um, uh, it's, but but I, I think that, first of all, the press does not write about most of what happens in the city. The UK press is entirely equity-focused, basically. So it barely writes about insurance. It never writes about debt markets or futures. So nine-tenths of what happens in the city, the press doesn't write about at all. It's very much in the market for corporate, corporate control and, uh, and equities, which right. I think is a mistake. But I mean, that, 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 that is one case. I think the, the second is that basically financial news is very boring, so you personalize it to jazz it up, and it's much more fun when it goes wrong. So, you know, you, you get a negativity there. Um, so I wouldn't defend the UK press, but I would equally not defend the American press, which has been a cheerleader for every crook and spiv, uh, that, that, that ever comes. I mean, a marvellous indicator of when somebody's going to go bust is when they're on the front page of Business Week. It's, it's Carlisle at the moment, if you're interested. Um, <coughs> um, and, and the American press have got a shameful, a literally shameful record of not exposing scandals at the time, be it Enron or anything else. So, uh, I mean, goodness knows we are bad, but they are bad in a different way. They're not, they're not a paragon to which we should aspire.
1: Thank you. Sir? Uh,
7: Lionel Simons, Clean Air Systems. Uh, I wonder if the panel would care to predict when they believe China will become a major player in the, London's international market. They've already supplanted Japan as the key purchaser of U.S. Treasury bonds. And sooner or later, they're bound to come over here. And do you think they will? And when? And what is London going to do to try and attract them in?
1: Do you Uh, want to try that, Tony?
7: I wouldn't
2: like to put a a date on it. Um, (laughs) China, in terms of size, is obviously already a key factor, as we all know. Um, and exactly how the numbers will move I wouldn't like to like to predict and others can better better knowledge of the numbers than me could do so. Uh, I think a slightly uh, different part of the story however is what happens in the let's just say the structure of the Chinese economy without getting into the sort of wider politics of it. To what extent are the players and the, the companies and the like that are involved in what's, what we're seeing in London going to become uh, uh, different in terms of open up, be, be genuinely private not not the, uh, as many of them are hybrids between the state and the private sector and so on and how that develops, in other words, how the Chinese economy opens up and if it, op- if it opens up and how it does so and how quickly it does so, that would determine the pace, really, uh, over the long term of, of, of their role. But if, if that happens, then I would have imagined that they would be very dominant indeed, but not in the next two or three years or something. We're going to have a much longer time period than that. Scott?
4: Yeah, uh, two comments uh, that I'd like to just make on that. Number one is China is growing right now at about uh, 9 10% a year. Uh, that's not sustainable, as I think we all know. Uh, that does mean that they'll double somewhere you know, around the six- or seven-year uh, basis. And, uh, again, that's not uh, dub- double in size in terms of GDP. Again, that's not sustainable. So I don't think we should make some trends in the same way as I said earlier, uh, like what was happening in Tokyo back in the 1980s or uh, perhaps in Germany and on the continent uh, you know, in the late 1990s and extrapolate outward. The second thing, though, I would like to say, and, again, it comes back to the acceptance within London of being able to deal with issues like that, Uh, I believe, and I'm actually looking at Henrietta Royal, who's the chief operating officer here, to make sure I get my fact correct here. But I think that Chinese students are actually the largest group of students. I'm I'm getting a yes uh, there. Are, in fact, the largest group of students at Cass Business School from any single country. So what's happening is a lot of them are coming here. Now, I know from teaching a lot of those that they're not going back to China. In fact, they're asking people like myself and others in this room uh, if, in fact, they can get some assistance to stay here. So there's a lot of that talent that's being exported this way as well.
1: Yeah, I'm tempted to quote and Lai when asked his views on the importance of the French Revolution, and he said it's too soon to
7: tell. Um, Peter York York from The Independent. Uh, Does it matter that actually the city is owned elsewhere? I mean, we've been talking about the comparison of function, that it's an international market, and Wall Street is more of a local one serving a great domestic economy. But the fact is, London is a flag of convenience in terms of who owns it, a very large chunk of that being American, who senior manages it, and where the returns from it go. And it's fantastic in terms of prices in Fillmore Gardens, to echo Martin, and um, stuff like that, and toss some, you know, rather useful middle-range workforce, the odd half-million bonus, but the returns go elsewhere. Now, should we be concerned or not?
5: Um, up to a point.
7: Uh, I, I,
5: I, I don't think we have to worry about the returns in terms of the profits going elsewhere because most financial institutions are the ultimate communist organizations. I mean, the, the rewards go to labor, not capital, um, and, and, and therefore tend to stay here. The um, issue, I, I, th- I think Wimbledonization, I, I, I drew the line at Nasdaq's bid for the stock exchange on the basis that this wasn't Wimbledonization, this was selling Wimbledon and uh, and, and, and risking Wimbledon being moved or converted to clay because it was slower um, and, and therefore suits some of us better. Um, but I... I think London would not exist were it not international, so it's not a matter of whether it matters or not. It it is what it is, and uh, and it can't change, to my view.
4: In the same way that uh, it doesn't matter whether Manchester United is owned by Malcolm Glazier or um, the ownership of Liverpool Football Club is owned by somebody who also owns the Texas Rangers and the Montreal Canadiens, um, that, in fact, if anything will enable both those places to be able to upgrade their facilities and to be able to keep ticket prices down in the same way that um, the ownership and a lot of the business taking place here in London by American firms and, by the way, also by Dutch firms, by German firms, by French firms, uh, by Chinese firms in the future, by Indian firms in the future. Uh, That, in fact, again, makes it better and easier for us to do. I think it was Anthony who earlier said... uh, uh, you know, said so the issues are you can't necessarily buy in New York if you're not from the U.S. Uh, we don't have those problems here, and that's one of the advantages that we have. That we have.
1: Time for one more question, lady in the front. Uh,
7: Margaret Doyle Montrose Associates. I was surprised to hear Martin Van Der Weer. Uh, make what I consider to be the Will Hutton point, which is, oh, it's really bad for London that uh, we've got this fantastic financial services centre, and isn't it uh, perhaps dangerous for the balance with the rest of the economy? And my concern is actually the reverse, which is that uh, here we have this London city-state, which happens to be in the UK, and here we are with uh, a lot of London taxes being used. I mean, of course, you're going to have some sort of redistribution, but... uh, you know, i'm more concerned about transport and i guess i would ask whether you know wh- what what can we as londoners do to make sure that some of the wealth is it, that is generated here is used for the needs that we have here in particular things like uh, transport and cross rail
1: yeah, i think we shortchanged that question actually so any quick comments yes, on from the panel tony yeah
7: um
2: i certainly think uh the, the, does it matter that we're internationally owned, that's the previous question? Uh, no, uh, beca- partly because it, it works well and it doesn't matter, but also because the key point that Anthony Hilton mentioned as well, that that's what makes London work, it's fundamental that we've o- opened up and have been open. Um, on, the, on the where the money goes, um, the uh, tax take from financial services in, in, primarily in London, but also in other parts of the UK, uh, that goes into the UK Treasury is huge, and you take the controversy just before Christmas about bonuses. Uh, it's difficult to estimate the numbers because, of course, the figures are not published by the various banks. But there are ways people have calculated them and tried to estimate them. Let's say you there was a uh, let's say there was about eight billion dollars of bonuses floating around, about four billion pounds. Um, about two two and a half billion of those pounds. Uh, um, sorry, about, about one, one half. there was about 40% or so, goes into the UK Treasury. Uh, so the biggest uh, bonus gainer is Gordon. Uh, absolutely fundamental to, to what's going on. Um,
3: the um, sorry, sorry, I'll leave that here. Jonathan? Ownership, I agree with what... I'm sorry, it was just the previous question. I agree with what people say. I don't think it's the nationality of ownership that matters, but, but, but sort of what happens with that, and that is a, 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 something which can be... Um, the subject of regulation um, on the on the on uh, the last point I um, just to add a point to what Tony said with which I generally agree um, I think that the corporation almost uniquely amongst local authorities actually provides a sort of reverse rate support grant into the Exchequer um, which yes. um, which uh, business right. which <coughs> does it well, two anyway so um, uh, but there's a substantial amount of money going that direction yeah central business district certainly yeah
4: Scott. Um,
5: well, I'd say that if financial services were not here, do you think transport would be any better? Um, the answer is clearly no. I mean, uh, transport is appalling. I mean, the, the, the whole UK record on infrastructure is appalling. Um, uh, what on earth one does about it is another matter. But I don't really think that you can blame the overcrowding and so on on, on, on the success of the city. I mean. Uh, uh, and and uh, i think that london as a whole benefits from the wealth So I mean, uh so i'm not quite sure what the uh, you know what 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 you'd expect instead maybe i didn't quite understand the question some of the taxes can be spent on CrossFit rather than on Scotland yeah but Scotland is, <laughs> but as uh, as a, a, a scot uh, London, mm, no, but, yeah, I mean the the, the, the the next stage is that we shelve the unproductive regions of which uh, Scotland, from where I hail, will be one. <laughs> yeah, oh,
0: right.
1: right. Good. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a great discussion. I think we slightly shortchanged New York. I mean, this is the city, after all, that came back from nine eleven. It also came back from Ford to New York, dropped dead in seventy six. So it's, it would be perhaps foolish to write off New York particularly at this point. But it's been a thrilling uh, and very interesting discussion. Thank you, Tony, for coming up with the best line uh, to describe the UK, and have a great day.